Welcome to Experience This, the podcast that celebrates remarkable customer experiences and inspires you to stand out from the competition by wowing your customers. Each episode, we bring you a healthy dose of inspiring stories, funny interactions, and practical takeaways. Marketing and customer experience thought leader, Dan Gingas. Shares the mic with customer retention and employee experience expert, Joey Coleman, helping you to get people talking about your business. So get ready, because it's time to experience this. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss the psychology behind buyer decisions what banking customers are looking for from their bank, and a car buying experience with long-lasting effects. Safety, savings, and satisfaction. Oh, my. There are so many great customer experience articles to read, but who has the time? We summarize them and offer clear takeaways you can implement starting tomorrow. Enjoy this segment of CX Press, where we read the articles so you don't need to. Joey, I don't know if you know this or if our listeners do, but I majored in psychology and communications in college, which basically means I had no idea what I wanted to do (laughs) when I grew up. I was going to say, you picked a major as a senior. Fabulous. Now, I knew about the communications. I'm not surprised about the psychology given some of our conversations, but that is a new reveal for me in season 10 of the Experience This Show. Well, the funny thing is I went into marketing and it took me a couple of years, but I realized down the road that psychology plus communications is actually marketing. How do you like that? So I happen to be very interested in this article that I found on a website called Destination CRM that is called Why B2B Buyers Choose the Safest Rather Than the Best Solution. Now, I do want to remind our listeners that B2B stands for business to business, if you didn't know that. And the opposite of it is B2C, which is business to consumer. Now, let's start with the real headline of this article. Instead of buying the best solution for the business, buyers tend to select the solution that is safest for them personally. Now, there's obviously some psychology at play here. I'm going to quote from the article. On one level, they need to understand the purchase requirements, risk, and rewards from the perspective of the business they represent. For example, how the decision could make the business more competitive or further the company's strategic ambitions. B2B buyers are people too, however, and will naturally factor their own professional ambitions and personal concerns into their decision-making process. For example, who gets blamed if things go wrong and how the purchase decision will improve their own work world. These two perspectives are often in conflict. Forrester found something it called the B2B risk-reward gap. What it says is that the typical B2B buyer sees more reward for the company than for themselves, but more risk for themselves than the company. Thus, they often choose what is perceived to be the safest alternative. So what can a sales team do to alleviate this gap? Well, here comes the communications part of the equation. According to the article, quote, Start by recognizing the human scale of B2B buying. 
Purchase decisions are made by individuals who have specific personal and professional cares and concerns. Selling organizations must be more empathetic and recognize and address the personal and professional risks impacting individual members of the buying group rather than solely delivering appeals and messages at the organizational level. Now, that was a long sentence, so I just want to translate that, which is to say that most sales literature and content is aimed at the business and very little of it talks about the person at the other end and how they might benefit. So I was on the buying end of lots of transactions during my 20 years in corporate America. But before we get into that, I wanted just to get your reaction to these findings, Joey. Well, Dan, I got to tell you, three things came up for me. Number one, as our mutual friend Brian Kramer would say, B2B, B2C, it's all irrelevant. It's H to H, friends. It's human to human. You are a human being selling to another human being. So number two, the research did not really surprise me that much in the sense that it reiterated a worldview or a blueprint or a philosophy that I have, which is, I don't care what you're selling. You need to pay attention to the emotions, the feelings, the hopes, the desires, the fears, the uncertainty of the person you're selling to or the person who's buying. But the third and final thing that came up for me is, I think there is a huge opportunity in a business sales environment to make the sale about the individual. And it's actually something that I don't know how I learned this or where I learned it. But early on in my career, when I started selling design services to corporations, I would ask them as we were going through the sales process and I'd explain what I do. When we were all done and they kind of knew what was in it for the business, I would say, now tell me what your personal goals are head of marketing at this company or head of customer experience at this company. Because one of the things I always try to do is make sure that the project is positioning you for your next promotion, your next pay raise, your next job opportunity, etc. What are your goals and how can we design those into this project? I got to tell you, Dan, when I asked people that, they fell out of their chairs first. Then they got back in their chairs and were, you know, kind of had this, are you serious look on their face? And I would lean into it and say, no, really, what can we do to design it? And when I help them get promoted, when I help them get raises, when I help them deliver on the thing they were supposed to do, I had customers for life. Uh, Joey, I love that. And I could have used that a lot in corporate America. <laughs> because one of the things I wanted to say was that this really struck a chord with me because this is real. You make these decisions for your company about buying some, you know, half a million dollar piece of software. And there's a lot of emotion that goes into that. And, you know, I love when I get the question, I'm sure you have as well, after some speeches, someone will come up and say, you know, I work for a B2B. Does customer experience matter for us? And I'm like, yeah, well, only if you're marketing to humans. If not, you know, move on, right? But one of the things that I always suggest, and it actually plays very well into what you talk about much more fluently in your book is that once the the moment after somebody signs a contract, what often happens, especially in the B2B world where I have worked, is there's an internal celebration. There they ring a bell or there's a Slack channel where everybody, you know, announces that there's a new logo, which I hate calling them a logo too, because it takes the personification out of it. But The person that is not involved in any celebration whatsoever is the person that just signed the contract on the other side. 
And so when I talk to B2B companies, I, I kind of walk them through this and I can say, look, I was the signer of a lot of these. And let me tell you, there's two ways that I can go home that night. I can either go home that night to my significant other and say, oh boy, what a day at work. Signed a half a million dollar contract. Sure hope I didn't screw that one up because the boss is going to fire me if I did. Or I can go home and to my significant other and say, today was an amazing day because I just signed a half a million dollar contract that is not only going to be awesome for the company, but it's going to be my path to promotion. It's going to make me and my team look so good. And I know this, as I explained to the B2B people, because as soon as we signed the contract, the salesperson put his arm around me and said, Dan, you just made the best decision of your career. And we're going to be here for you every step of the way to make sure that we deliver everything that we promised. And it's like that simple gesture completely changes how the buyer literally goes home at night and how they feel. Dan, it is so true. It's all about the people. You know, one of the things I'd love our listeners to do, if you're willing to play along, is let me ask two questions. Number one, have you heard of the phrase buyer's remorse? Now, I imagine most of the people that are listening are nodding their heads right now or raising their hands or saying to themselves, yeah, Joey, I've, I've heard of buyer's remorse. If you are raising your hand, you can put them down. It's okay. We, it's okay. We, we see, see you, you, but we appreciate I see you. I see you through the sound waves and I appreciate it. Now, the second question would be, if you've heard of buyer's remorse and you know what that is, the doubt that a buyer feels right after they make the purchase, what are you doing in your business to affirmatively address this? How are you having the conversation with the buyer to assuage their fears, their doubts, their uncertainties, and let them know, to your point, Dan, that you're going to take care of them? Now, when I ask that second question, most businesses that I've interacted with, they clam up real fast. Their eyes glaze over. They're like, well, uh, you know, when we get... Uh, I, I mean, to the kickoff meeting, we'll talk about... And it's just like, folks, just, just say we do nothing. Just say we do nothing. If your business was going to do a single thing to dramatically change the experience you deliver for your customers, find a way to make the projects you sell to them personal. Find a way to help the buyer at the organization that you're selling to get promoted get a raise, look good to their boss, come out smooth sailing, finish ahead of schedule, finish under budget. I don't care what the metric is, but if you make them look good, they become an advocate within the organization. Totally agree. So hopefully, even if you're not in the B2B world, that you've learned something here, that there is psychology to the sales process, that there is communications in the sales process, or frankly, in the marketing process as well. And when we put the two of those together, we understand what our buyers are going through, then we can figure out a way to address it and make the process that much easier for them. Surveys, reports, studies, and reviews. There are some great resources that look at consumer behavior to find emerging trends and established patterns. We dig through the data and bring you the key takeaways in this edition of Inside the Numbers. Joey, I happened upon a fascinating bit of research by American Banker and Monogle, a creative experience agency. 
And it was summarized in a report called Humanizing the Bank Customer Experience 2022. It was a study of 8,500 U.S. adults of varying ages, and it talked all about their banking habits. So I wanted to go through some of the findings with you, and I thought maybe we could chat about them because I have a feeling that you'll have something to say. And I spent only 14 years in financial services, so a lot of this uh, definitely brought back some memories for me. So finding number one was that when people commit to a bank, it is for a long time. The majority of people choose two different providers, but 40% only choose one. The average tenure is 14 years. And only 6% of survey respondents said that they were extremely or very likely to switch within the next two years. So, Joey, does this mean that banks should just give up? Or is this possibly an opportunity for customer experience to be a differentiator? I might be leading the witness here, just You might be leading the witness a little bit, but I will say I knew the answer to this one because like you, Dan, I have spent a shocking amount of time late on Friday nights sitting around reading banking studies. No, and I'm not joking. I mean, actually, the entire impetus for my first book, Never Lose a Customer Again, was sparked by a study I read about bank customer behavior. And what that study found is directly connected to what you just shared. Now, if we go back to the actual phrase Dan used, if I'm recalling correctly, you said, when people commit to a bank, it's for a long time. So the question is, when do people commit? And the research shows that 32% of new bank customers will leave that bank before the one-year anniversary. So the opportunity that's available to banks is to create such a remarkable customer experience that we get the customer over the hurdle of the 100-day anniversary, which makes them much more likely to commit. And to your point, when they do commit, we're not talking about, hey, they're going to be here for a couple months. It turns into they're going to be here for more than a decade. So I think there's a huge opportunity for customer experience, not only in the banking world as a differentiator, but frankly, for every business in every industry. Well, and the funny thing is, is that so much of bank advertising is about anything but the experience. It's about, you know, <laughs> so our, our rates are, you know, 0.00002% lower than the next guys, you know, and that's why I'm going to give up my 14-year relationship. So I do think it's funny that a lot of advertising does not focus on the experience when perhaps it should. All right, another interesting thing, younger customers are more likely to diversify their financial services and are more expansive in their definition of what actually banking involves. So for instance, they look at peer-to-peer payment apps, cryptocurrency, and other things as being quote-unquote banking. For example, 72% of Gen Zers and 59% of Millennials associate PayPal with banking compared with less than half of respondents in the other generations. And I just want to make sure we're clear here, PayPal is not a bank. Kids these days. Now, Joey, as you've been studying employee experience lately, I would wager that you might be seeing youngsters influencing the work environment quite a bit too. So my question is, are the kids just taking over everything? 
You know, they are. And let's be candid, they always are. This has always been the case since the beginning of time. The younger generations are pushing forward with potentially more innovation, with more changes, with greater expectations. But I'll say I'm in that category of the less than half of the respondents who actually see things like PayPal and Venmo and Stripe as banking. You know, when I think of who do I have a banking relationship with, my Venmo account currently has half as much money as my bank account. Now, that's my Venmo account. Why? Because increasingly, when I'm doing payments to clients or I'm getting payments from clients or I'm doing payments to friends or receiving payments for friends, you know, you go to dinner and you split tabs, something like that, the transactions are happening via Venmo. And why are they happening via Venmo? Mainly because there's no fee and it's instantaneous. Two things that the younger generations are all about, speed and convenience. If I go on my bank and I want to do even an ACH, which by the way, ACH payments cost banks nothing, or if they cost anything, it's minimal. I have to pay $5 now for an ACH transfer or $30 for a wire. I can do the same thing over Venmo for free. And I hate to pay extra money to digitally transfer my money to someone else when, let's be candid, it's my money and the bank is making money by the interest that they're earning off of lending my money to other people. So the fact that they're kind of double dipping makes Joey not the biggest fan of the current (laughs) banking environment. Totally fair. And for those that don't know what ACH is, it's it stands for Automated Clearinghouse, but basically it is what allows banks to exchange money with each other. So if anybody's ever asked you for the routing number and account number of your bank, they are doing an ACH transaction one way or the other. All right. So you kind of referenced this. Uh, the third finding uh, is about big tech. And big tech is not just coming, it is already here. Now, they don't have banking licenses. Instead, they rely on chartered banks to provide financial products. But they do offer credit cards, buy now, pay later, digital wallets, and other services. These are companies like Google, Apple, Walmart, Amazon, and Facebook. So, Joey, how do companies prepare for these new non-traditional competitors when they're already busy looking down the street at their bank competitor, right? They, they have a, a re, an establishment, a brick and mortar bank, and you know, a couple doors down, there's another brick and mortar bank. So we're already competing about them. Now we have to worry about a whole different set of competitors. We do. And I have to admit, uh, and forgive me for saying this, If we're starting to see big tech like Google, Apple, Walmart, Amazon, and Facebook operate as banks, add to my list of yet more banks I have a relationship with, okay? I've got a relationship with Apple. I've got a relationship with Amazon. And I hadn't thought of those as banks, but I have the Apple card and I have an Amazon card and Amazon Pay. So I have some of these relationships already and they get a lot of my business. I think to answer your question, when it comes to non-traditional competitors, that is increasingly the major competitor in your life, regardless of what industry you're in. See, I think customers, and I know, Dan, we've talked about this a lot and you feel the same way, your customers aren't comparing you to the other bank down the street. 
because they've never done business with that bank. They know nothing about that bank. They're comparing you to the best experiences they've ever had. They're comparing you to Netflix and Amazon Prime and Tesla and maybe the Disney store or you know, going on a beautiful vacation or flying first class or whatever the best, most convenient, most beautiful, most thoughtful, most personalized, most customized interactions they've had with any brand. That is increasingly the standard that you're being held to. So I think the main thing that banks and frankly, any company should do to prepare for these new non-traditional competitors is to benchmark against those organizations instead of benchmarking against your own industry. Yeah, I always think that it's important to look at other industries anyway. It's, it's just a belief that I have. And I've told bankers before, you know, if you're looking for inspiration, don't look at another bank. That's the last place I would look for inspiration. Uh, if you're in that, if you're a health insurance provider, please don't look at other health insurance providers. They're all doing it poorly, right? So if you want to find inspiration, look outside your industry. I also think there's opportunity here uh, for the smart banks to uh, establish partnerships. And we've definitely seen that, you know, that Apple card is issued by a bank. So is Amazon's card. Uh, and I think that sometimes if you can't beat them, join them is the right answer. And I do think there's some been some really great examples of companies that have partnered with other industries in order to create mutual value. All right. When asked, how willing would you be to share your personal data with your bank or financial institution if it meant receiving some personalized customer benefits? I'm going to pause here because back in season five, episode 101, remember we're going to do throwbacks this year. You and I had an agree to disagree where we talked about privacy versus convenience. Now, as usual, uh, yes, I do. On, as usual on agree to disagree, I won. I, that's how I recall well, it. Well, everybody listening remembers that I was right, but that's okay. Live in your little world. Maybe you should go back and listen again. But hey, here it is, right? How willing would you be to share your personal data, that's privacy, if it meant receiving personalized customer benefits, that's convenience in a way. 73% said they would share most or all of their private personal data, which is up from 66% just one year ago. So I think we can say that privacy is just about out the door on that one. Which I do believe if you go back and listen to season five, episode 101, that is the argument that I made that convenience know, was going to completely it. trump privacy. I see that once again, I was seeing the future and the data supports me now. Woohoo! That's funny. Memory is a slippery slope. Well, also when asked which financial services brands came to mind with the mention of personalization, the winner was J.P. Morgan Chase, which also reminds me of another throwback, which was season four, episode 77, when we talked about the personalized images on their homepage. Remember, you could type in your own zip code and see the images uh, that they had for your town. Next after that was Bank of America and then Wells Fargo. So we're talking about the big banks, uh, which are sort of winning this for personalization. And finally... The kids, again, lead the way when it comes to different kinds of personalization. The study found that it, it, when it asked what kinds of preferences do, uh, do people want, and, it, and they looked at it by generation, the ones that came up for the youngsters, personalized feedback regarding your spending habits, 
very highly regarded by the Gen Zs and millennials, much less regarded by the older generations. Personalized recommendations that provide insight about the impact of major purchases on your cash flow or available balances, also very high. And a personalized summary of all subscriptions, including expiration data and suggestions for bundles that can save you money. Oh, I'd love that one. I got to admit, I'm not in that youngster crowd, but I would love that one. Yes. Well, you and 15% of other Gen Xers said yes to that one. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different here, Joey. This study is so big and so interesting. I'm actually going to bring it back and do a second segment on it in the next episode because otherwise we would be here all night. There's just so many things to talk about, but there is more. And we're going to come back with the second half of this study in the next episode. True Confessions of a call center agent. I have a confession to make. I love my job so much more since, well, since the big change. Everyone was so worried about it, but then it happened and life just got so much simpler. I've shortened my call times, which my boss is like, but I never feel like I'm rushing the customer off the phone. It just works. Good evening, and thanks for calling Superfast Answer Corp. This is Sam in Park City, Utah. How may I help you? Oh, hey, Sam. I love Park City. I took my family skiing there last year. The snow is absolutely stunning. Yeah, it is not a bad life, I got to admit. So did you need help with your order? Yeah, actually, I did. The, the boots, the gloves, or the helmet? Um, that would be the helmet. How did you know it was about the helmet? You were hoping to swap out the black one for the blue one, weren't you? Wow, that's exactly what I was trying to do. But I, you know, I was not sure. But it's not supposed to arrive until tomorrow. Don't worry, I've taken care of it. The black one is on its way back to us and I've shipped out a blue one for you that will be there tomorrow. Are you serious? I, I've, I've never had this happen before. I, I don't know what to say. This is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. You are most welcome. Have fun on the slopes and reach out again anytime. Wasn't that an amazing call? Now do you see why I love my job so much? I have the tools I need, the information at my fingertips, and recommended search results that predict what people need before they even know they need it. The customer is happy, which makes my job more fun, so I'm happy too. I'm so glad we started using Coveo. To create amazing customer experiences and agent experiences, you need Coveo. Visit get.caveo.com slash experience this. That's G-E-T dot C-O-V-E-O dot com slash experience this to learn about Caveo's AI-powered recommendation engine that delivers the relevant, personalized interactions that your customers desperately want. Sometimes a remarkable experience deserves deeper investigation. We dive into the nitty-gritty of customer interactions and dissect how and why they happen. Join us while we're dissecting the experience. I placed an order in January of this year for a new electric car. And I'm not going to tell you which one because in this case, we need to protect the guilty. Uh-oh. <laughs> yep, it's one of those. Oh, now, no. 
The delivery date range was originally listed as late March to late April. So as instructed, I downloaded the mobile app to complete the buying process. Every couple of weeks, I checked the mobile app and found that the delivery dates had changed drastically, sometimes by weeks, sometimes by months. Not only was I not notified of these changes in any communication channel, but if I hadn't proactively checked the app, I would have never known that the dates had changed. And of course, other than suspecting supply chain issues, I had no idea why the dates kept changing. Wouldn't you argue this is a strange way to begin a brand new customer relationship? Oh, strange is maybe the polite way to say it. I was thinking of things like horrible, pathetic, miserable, disastrous. Those are some of the modifiers that I was coming up with. They they gave you no notice of major changes in the delivery timeline. And the only way you knew it is because you were proactively launching a, an app that the only reason I presume you have the app on your phone is because you use the app to buy a car. Yeah, so settle into your bucket seats and fasten oh that seatbelt, Joey, because it gets a whole lot worse. Oh, no. So with my delivery date listed as late May... I learned that the great state of Illinois, where I live, announced a new $4,000 rebate for purchases of electric vehicles, but that it didn't begin until July 1st. So I inquired with the car dealership whether I could delay my delivery until then. The company had no idea about this rebate, nor, they said, could they do anything to help me take advantage of it. Now, mind you, my state is paying people to buy their cars but they don't know anything about it and can't help me. Okay, so my delivery date changes to May 1st through the 15th. But a week later, it changes to May 16th to June 13th. My head is absolutely spinning. Dan, this is like the worst version of the cable company when they're like, hey, we'll be there sometime between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. next Tuesday. And you're like, oh, I'll take a whole day off. This is giving you a two-week window. These are ridiculous. That and the second changing. one's a 30-day window. Yes, that keeps changing, right. Okay, so next thing that happens, I open up my app and it says the delivery will be between May 18th and, 20, and May 22nd. I receive an email on the same day saying that my car is ready and that I need to pick it up either May 13th or 14th. So first of all, the email doesn't match the app. And second of all, tiny problem, I'm going to be out of the country on May 13th and 14th, so I can't pick up the car. Whoops. So I call and ask whether I can pick up the car early. The answer is no. Can I pick up the car late? The answer is no. <laughs> can I pay for the car now and have you just keep it on the lot while I'll, I'll have it insured and I'll just pick it up when I get home? No. Can I have a friend or family member pick it up? No. These are all policies that this company has instituted. And the only answer is you pick up the car on one of these two days or we give it to someone else. So... Wait, wait I'm sorry. Wait a second. Or we give it to someone else and then my presumption is you go back in the queue to wait for a car? That's absolutely right. Oh my gosh. And this is what happens, Joey, oh when, when there's so much demand, right? I, I get it on one hand, but on the other hand, it's like, it's not like you were 
you know, hassling them on paying or anything. And they're the ones that are shifting the date. I can understand if they said at the beginning, hey, your vehicle is going to be ready on May 13th. And then you scheduled to be out of the country at that time. They could say, well, look, we made an agreement that you would take delivery on May 13th. And now it's May 13th. Why aren't you here? But as I understand it, it had shifted multiple times before they locked down the specific date that they were going to be delivering. Yes. I wish the story was over, Joey, but I'm going to keep going. So because I didn't pick up the car, my account got put on hold. I don't know what that means. I just went to the app and it said my account was on hold. So I emailed them and said, hey, um, can I get my account off of hold? And I sort of mentioned that you know I was out of the country and they were really sticklers for the date. So I get an email back that says, sorry to hear about your experience. I totally understand where you're coming from, but that's our policy regarding taking delivery of our vehicles. <laughs> Wow. Thanks. Awesome. The the age old, I will show you empathy by quoting a policy. Yes. All right. So I I get off hold and now my new date is mid-June. I just want to remind listeners here of falling asleep at this point that I ordered the car in January and it's now mid-June. Now, wait a second. So are they're still holding the car or they gave your car to someone else? They gave my car to someone else. They've now ordered another one. They've put me, not at the end of the line, but I'm now waiting for the next car. Yeah. Whatever the next car that has the same features I selected it's on its way. Well, you could probably see where this is going. Yeah, you're closer to July 1st. I am very close to July 1st. And I am not picking this car up like two days before I can get a $4,000 rebate. Unless, of course, the car company wants to take $4,000 off the price, which they're not going to do. So I inquire about putting my account back on hold because they're giving me dates of mid-June. And I'm like, I'm not picking up the car in mid-June. So they said, well, we can put you back on hold. But if you put your account on hold for the second time, you risk auto cancellation. Oh, nice, nice. We have a new term that is concocted by them for no reason other than to create a miserable customer experience. Yes, pretty much. So I basically wrote back and in so many words, I said, look, I've been waiting since January. I am going to pick up this car after July 1st, or I am sure there is another electric vehicle company that would love to sell me a car and I will be happy to go talk to them. So put my account on hold. And the guy wrote back and said, okay, I'll put you on hold, but you might be subject to auto cancellation. And I'm thinking, just let these guys try to cancel me, right? Is there kind of an irony that it's auto cancellation and it's an auto auto. purchase? I'm sorry, somebody listening just had the same thought I did. Yes, exactly. So uh, I go back on hold and then I get a note. I go onto the app and it says that my account is on hold until July 7th. Well, that sounds great. I'm happy Boom, to take $4, it off on July 7th. Good right? job waiting. Aha. But I get an email that says I need to take it off of hold by June 12th or get canceled. So I know what's going on here. I can't take it off on June 12th. They're going to give me a date of like June 30th. Right, right. Then you're going to be really irritated. I'm going to be right back where I am, right? That's exactly what happened. No. So I I took it off hold on June 11th because they confirmed for me, if you do not take it off on hold, you are going to get canceled. So I took it off on June 11th. And sure enough, they gave me a date of the range was June 25th to June 29th. Unbelievable. You, if I didn't know you better, if I was just listening, I'd be like, he's just making this up to create a wacky story. And well, I have to admit, this is not, uh, we're not going to name the brand, but I know you well enough to know this is not 
Bob's electric vehicles down the road. <laughs> like this is a major global electric vehicle brand. It's got to be, yes. right? And I okay. should tell you that during this time, I am now researching other, frantically researching other EVs. And, uh, but for another company wanting to charge me $10,000 over sticker price, I would be driving that company's car right now. I, I, I wanted to walk off the lot with this car and they wouldn't let me unless I paid $10,000 more than sticker price, which I'm sorry, also not happening. Not a way to start a relationship with a new customer. So I freeze my account for the third time, which I know is a big <laughs> risk. And I take it off of hold and they give me a new delivery date of November to January. <laughs> oh my gosh, they really punished you. They really punished you. And I'm like, this cannot possibly be serious. But a week later, just because, the date turns to late July. So but for the $10,000 over sticker price and but for this company coming back to late July, I'm not getting the car. Well, look, at the end of the day, I buy the car at the end of July. Right after I buy the car, I get an email that says, thank you for purchasing a you-know-what. We value your feedback and would like to learn more about your experience. Joey, I wish you could have seen what I wrote in this survey. Oh my gosh. Oh my, this is one of those where you're like, I will be taking four hours with this survey to document in great detail the ridiculousness of the pre purchase journey that I just went on, or at least the, the pre-acceptance of the vehicle journey. Yes. And I thank you for saying that because I, I wasn't even a customer yet. Right, and I right. You're, you're technically a prospect at this point because you, I presume you put some type of a deposit down, but you hadn't paid for the whole thing, right? No, and it's actually a small deposit. So I, I was okay walking away from the deposit. It was a couple hundred dollars. It wasn't anything big. Wow. And so I was willing to walk away from it. I was so irritated. Now, here's the killer part. I got the car. The car is beautiful. The car is fun to drive. It is so fast. I can't believe it. Like it, when you see, if you've ever been in an electric vehicle and accelerated, oh, yeah. it is not like you a get gas pushed vehicle. back into the seat. You and do. You get the body feeling without the sound. That's, I think, what creates the the scrambling of our minds when we're in an electric vehicle that really accelerates. Because in a car, we're used to hearing the engine bear down and everything yeah. push and forward shift gears. and feel it and shift yeah. gears. With an electrical, it's like a golf cart. You just press on it and next thing you're flying. And it's zooming, right. And the technology is great and all this. But here's the thing, Joey. When people ask me, how do you like your car? You tell them the story of the I, trouble I, to get there. I, no, because I would. I don't have an hour. But <laughs> I don't. I don't love the car, right? Because you were in the hole emotionally because of the way they treated you. Because I hate the company so much, right? Before you actually got the vehicle. Ugh, what a missed opportunity, right? And so it's affected. It has totally affected my satisfaction with the car. And so my plan right now, by the way, is to take the rebate from the state of Illinois. You have to keep the car for a year. And my plan is to sell the car in a year. And, and buy a competitor's car. And buy a competitor. Yep. And so, yep. folks, you know, sorry for the long story. But first of all, I had to tell you all the details because I wanted to get you in the headspace of where I was, which is this is unbelievable for a company, let's face it, any company that's working on electric vehicles is pretty forward thinking on the technology side, right? They are at the cutting edge. But if that happens without the experience, 
you're not going to gain customers. You're going to lose customers. And I think some of the companies out there, maybe one in, this one in particular, have become a little egotistical about their place in the EV world. And my prediction is that in a couple of years, if more people have experiences like this, they are not going to be in the same place that they are now. So please, folks, the pre-purchase experience is a huge part of the experience because it sets up the rest of the ownership. We talked about banks and people being uh, affiliated with their banks for 14 years. Well, people tend to own cars for a long time too. So this is a long-term relationship. And if the way that you're going to start it is to either drag people through a horrible process where you're changing dates all the time or tell them that just because you can, you're going to charge $10,000 more than the sticker price. That is not a way to welcome people into your company, nor is it a way to get them talking positively about you. If you are in the market for an EV, I sincerely hope that you have a better experience than I. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. You're the best listener ever. And since you listened to the whole show, yay, you! We're curious. Was there a specific part of this episode that you enjoyed the most? If so, it would mean the world to us if you could share it with a coworker, a friend, or someone that just loves listening to podcasts. And while you're in the sharing mood, if you felt inclined to jump over to iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and write us a review, we would so appreciate it. And when you do, don't forget to let us know as we might have a little surprise for you. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next week for more Experience This.